You have found the Run Around Iowa, the podcast that's dedicated to news and interviews with the athletes, coaches, and personalities who are making headlines in college cross country, track and field, road running, trail running, and triathlon in the state of Iowa. And now from the home office in Clive, here is your host, Lance Bergeson. Okay, I'm here at the Panera Bread in Urbandale, and I'm with John Lipa. This is very, uh, very fun uh, to uh, get to talk with you today, um, since you um, have an incredible streak of running that we'll get to, and you were also Midnight Madness race director for seven years. So, I got to thank Matt Millard for uh, uh, letting me know about you and that you had this amazing streak going on. Yeah, oh, good morning, Lance. Um, yeah, running's been part of my life, and. Uh, I've always been an athlete, you know, even before high school, then in high school, but I was never a runner. And when I uh, was a graduate student at Iowa State, I worked as a bartender and I met a, a number of international students who used to come in, it's called the Pisa Den, the first place in campus town that served beer, and they got me interested in rugby. And I played on the inaugural rugby team at Iowa State oh, wow. with fellows from New Zealand, from France, from Ireland. And But anyway, the second year of playing, I, in a practice, I damaged his knee fairly seriously and had part of my kneecap removed. And I was in a cast for a long time, and I was worried about the leg atrophying and suffering permanent damage the rest of my life because of, of that injury. And so I started running and found out I had a pretty good natural VO2 capacity. And this is early 1970s when the, big, the first big wave of gym fixes running popularity was taking hold and I got caught up in that and realized that you know I could run 5k's and 10k's and slowly started building myself back back up and got into a few races in the early 70s and um, fell in love with it and you know in Iowa State at the time uh, I had a number of good friends that were either faculty or students or just lived in Ames that were also runners a lot of them were Iowa State faculty and we trained together Five days a week, we would run out of the old state gym. Mm. And, and I met Cal Murdoch, and, and I met Mike Myers, who was the director of the YMCA. And um, anyway, I finally was convinced by some of these other guys to uh, train for a marathon. That was 1974. And so I trained with no coaching, not really knowing what I was doing. Um, but these guys were all pretty good long-distance runners, and we did routine workouts of 10 miles or longer. And so anyway, my first marathon was in 1975 at the University of Kansas Realized. Mm. And it was a out and back race. You started at the stadium and you came back across the campus, across the Campanile, and you finished on the outside lane of their track. And I'll never forget it. I, I did hit a wall. I didn't even know what that term meant when I ran the first marathon, but I hit a wall somewhere around mile 20 or 21 and had to do some walk, jog, running. Mm -hmm. But, you know, when you got back within hearing of, of the stadium, you could hear the crowds cheering on the marathoners coming back in. And so, you know, you want to look good at the finish, no matter what it was like two miles back. And I ran in, and the best part of it was is they were running the competitive 10K at the same time on the inside lanes. And as I came in on that last outside lane, Frank Shorter and Jack Batchelor were running in the 10K. And this huge cheer is going up. And of course, I knew it wasn't for me, uh, you know, but it made me feel good. Yeah. And so I looked pretty good for the last 400 meters as I came in the stadium. And I ran about a three hour and 20 minute marathon, which, you know, wasn't too shabby for not knowing what I was doing. And then just kind of fell in love with it. And um, over the next 20 years, uh, I think my first three marathons, the times all, you know, uh, got closer and closer to three hours. And I broke three hours in my fourth marathon at the Oktoberfest relays up in La Crosse, Wisconsin. And, you know, and then I went on for the next, really, from early 1970s till the early 2000s and ran 18 marathons, over 250 road races. Um, found out about the Midnight Madness race as I was just getting into running in the early 1970s. A good friend of mine, Dale Grosvenor, who was on the faculty at Iowa State, and Carl Larson, who was a dentist, they were friends, and they had, in a very informal way, been organizing this on the Highway 30 bypass before it opened to traffic. And I ran one of those years just for fun, not knowing, again, what I was really doing. But uh, like the concept of running a race in the middle of the summer when temperatures in the 80s and 90s and the humidity is about the same. And, um, and then I was asked if I was interested in becoming the director towards the end of the 1970s. Mm. And, you know, with... Um, 
encouraging from Cal Murdoch, who's almost a lifelong friend, and Mike Frank and other other people that I knew. I said well, we'd give it a try. And you know, when I took over, there were just under 200 runners in the race. And for the next seven years, uh, we built the race to where we were up to 2,500 yeah. uh, runners at a couple of peak years, and each year getting bigger and bigger. And, and we modified it. They had run it different distances out on Highway 30, and you know, and then they switched to standard distances. And you know, we basically worked with the ISU Center and we athletic director. His name was Max Urich at the time. And Dave Percival, who was the general manager of the Gateway Center, the, at that time relatively new hotel, they agreed to host a expo, and and um, we got Mary Greeley Hospital to buy into it and provide free medical support for the races. And I got to know all the coaches at Iowa State, Bill Bergen, and and, and at Ames High School, uh, Ron Ranko, who tragically died in a plane crash, yeah. and so on. And so we had a great community base of support for building this race, uh, the novelty of it. And so, you know, we basically created a budget, got corporate sponsors, and had money to pay for teams coming in from out of state. And we created both a team competition and financial rewards for the individual winners in the races. And each year, uh, you know, we were able to get better and better runners, including a lot of future Olympians. Dick Beardsley made his first real competitive appearance, Midnight Madness. Lorraine Moeller, who went on to run in the Olympics for New yeah. Zealand, ran in our race. Um, so Priscilla Welch. Welch. Yeah. Priscilla yeah. Welch was awesome. Yeah. I mean, she was one of. She became a really good personal friend too, and she and her husband David. She had an amazing story to tell. You know, she, they met in the military in England, and she was a two pack a day cigarette smoker. And, hmm. and David got her interested in fitness in the military and found out that she just had a natural talent for running. And she ended up making the British Olympic team in that marathon uh, in the right. over as, over forty years of age. And you know, it was uh, so it was it was just a wonder. To, we had runners from all over the country coming, and in nineteen eighty four, we were called the best twenty k race in America. And, you know, we had uh, a phenomenal race with Mark Kerp, you know, running on basically two back-to-back 10Ks under 30 minutes to win the race. And, and we had, you know, and it was really competitive with Phil Coppice and some of the Kenyans from Iowa State. And um, I think to this day, it's the best 20K ever run in the Midwest. So, so yeah, it was, yeah. It was, a, it was a, a wonderful... I remember so. running those races, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't doing the 20K, but I was doing the shorter race, the 10K. And so well, was, one yeah. reason I became the director is that I hated to run in humidity. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't mind running at night, but, you know, I just suffocated out there. So, you know, I didn't want to run the race, so I just became the director, and it gave me an excuse not to run. Right. And then we had other people, too, that they they would come out there, and, and they were proud because they considered themselves iron men and women. And you could run the 5K, the 10K, the 20K, or you could run all three. You could run two of them. And a dear friend of mine for right. years, Jim Streeby from Atumla, yeah. I remember one year he ran all three of the races. And it just floored all of us. I mean, you know, here it is hot and humid and everything, and these people are out there running 35K in the heat <laughs> and doing fairly well. But, uh, so, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a wonderful time. Because almost every year you were guaranteed hot weather, hot and muggy. I mean, it was, you know. That was a guarantee. Was, yeah. But then a couple times we did have major did fronts have, move through in yep. 1984. Uh, yeah. I'm, you know, 30 feet in the air on scaffolding at the start of the race, and this, this, the sky just turned pitch black, and this incredible thunderstorm moves in, and lightning striking all around. People told me to get down from the scaffolding, <laughs> and we had to postpone the races. And but the best part of it is that the temperature dropped dramatically, and we ended up having some terrific times again because yeah. of you know, Mother Nature helping out that yeah. year. So yeah, once you have that fluke year, one year, you know, where it would happen, but you know. About every seventh or eighth year, you'd have that one really good year, and that yeah. was about it. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. Uh, so you were, you kind of helped. Well, you had to move it out of out of off of Highway Thirty, like you said, because the bypass was eventually going to get going to going to be completed. So it had to be moved, and and well, so what were the other options at the time? Well, I think some of the other considerations were that the ISU Center was a perfect setting for setting up finish lines starts without any kind of interruption from traffic or anything and when the city brought into this they loved the idea of running part of it around the center but part of it through the neighborhoods that had joined the ISU center 
And people would plan weekends with their lawn chairs and, and their favorite adult beverage or whatever, sitting out on the lawn and watching the runners go by. And, and it was terrific because they would plan parties around the Midnight Madness weekend. And a lot of them hosted runners who were coming in from all over the state, from all over the Midwest, put them up in their homes. And the Gateway Center gave Percival Comptis rooms for the visiting teams. And they basically gave us the top floor and a couple of other rooms so we could host up to 15 teams, elite teams from, you know, Minnesota, Illinois. Uh, you know, we had teams here from Missouri. And, um, and that was in addition to they could win some prize money in the team competition. And I think that really helped. And the Gateway was a perfect place. We had a two-day running expo. And Steve Bobbenhaus and a lot of others that were, you know, it was called ACO Sports, and a lot of people forget that. And, uh, yeah, I, and they helped coordinate. It, yeah. yeah, they helped coordinate setting up the uh, the expo, and it was a, a great opportunity for runners to come in and look at the latest in, in equipment for running and the latest gadgets they could use and everything else. And, and uh, we had workshops and seminars. Um, we brought in some of the top runners to, to basically speak to groups of runners. Dr. Alex Rattel at the time from Minneapolis was a physician who was one of the best masters runners in the country. And I remember, you know, he gave a, a very, you know, inspiring uh, talk about committing your life to running, a lifestyle of running and so on. And and others as well. So it was it was a whole weekend of activity. It wasn't just the race itself. So yeah, when did uh, when did this uh, post race party kind of come in? I know it was one of those years that I ran in the '80s, kind of when it started. Was that after you? Uh, after well, you no, left it, as it race started with us, it, it, <laughs> and and it sort of put another unique feature as part of the weekend. And you know, and I, just a couple of short stories on that. The party would usually start. The, the last race would end. You know, we started around eight or nine when the temperature was going down, and we would finish the last race maybe around ten thirty or something like that. And the party and the awards ceremony would start around eleven o'clock, and it would go on till one one thirty in the morning. And we would have lots of food, and we would have kegs of beer, and we would have you know soft drinks and so on available for the runners. And a lot of them they had trained hard for this race, and so they let their hair down, and they really enjoyed the party. We had live music. And a lot of them, even though they had just run, you know, 20 kilometers, they would dance and have a good time. And that, um, and I still, one of my favorite stories is that I was, uh, you know, we had just finished giving away the awards. And Cal said that there's, a fr you know, a friend from Des Moines that wants to meet you. And I said, uh, yeah, sure, I'd love to meet him. And, and Cal came over and he said, this is Dave Hurd. And, and I still, being a little bit ignorant, said, Dave, what do you do? And David said, well, I'm in the insurance business. Well, later, of course, I find out he was the insurance business. He was the CEO of Principal Financial. And we remained lifelong friends after that. You know, he was a regular at Midnight Madness. And, and we ran a lot of races together and things like that. So um, so it was a great time. Uh, Bob Barling, who's still alive and in his 90s, would bring down terrific teams from the Dakotas, from South Dakota. And, and Bob and I, you know, became friends for 30 years. And he made sure I had the best runners from North and South Dakota. Dakota, uh, both men and women who came down and ran. And the same thing with Mark Kirk from Missouri and Charlie Gray from Missouri and those guys. They would talk up our race for us. And when they came up, they showed up with just the best runners in the state. And so it sort of built its own momentum uh, over the years. And they said, this is a race you want to come in and compete in. So. Well, one of your races that you directed had the most ever, the, the 2,500, uh, one of those years. Oh, 1984. That was the record, yeah. Was it 84? Okay. Yeah, yeah. 84, I forget. That the was the record number. one. And they haven't approached had, it since. I think it was like almost 20 runners who broke uh, 103 for the 20K, which is phenomenal. I mean, in a lot of races today, that's a winning time. Yeah. And Mark Kirk ran the fastest 20K in the world at the time. He ran 59-39, I think it was, his winning time. And But, you know, and he was pushed by Phil Coppas, who arguably is one of the best runners ever to come out of Iowa. And, and then we had a couple of other runners uh, from England. There was an excellent runner. And then, of course, we had a slug of Kenyans who were running for Barnabas State career. at the time. Barnabas Career. Yeah, Barnabas Career was there. And, and Joseph Yobis. Yobis and Diki. Yobis and Diki. In the yeah. 10K, one of our 10Ks ran under 28 minutes. And it was the fastest time in the world. Yeah. And Yobis was a really easy going, quiet guy. Yeah. But when you put him on a cross-country course or on a course competitively, it just unleashed. <laughs> but, uh, so, yeah, no, I, I met some wonderful people in these races. So, so, when, uh, so why did you decide to uh, uh, end, uh, end your race director uh, 
duties after seven years then? What happened? Well, you know, my wife and I had been living in Ames for about 18 years. I started as an undergraduate there in 1963 and met my wife in 1969. And then basically in 1980, um, her job, you know, she would have to move if she wanted to stay, you know, with her job. And, and it dealt with political redistricting. And she worked for 33 years for Senator Tom Harkin. And so the closest office in the new district was going to be in Indianola. And so we moved to Indianola in, in 1981, but I, I remained race director for four more years. And I commuted back and forth from Indianola up to, uh, you know, Ames and, and enjoyed it. But it was, it was a lot of work because I was teaching full time and trying to keep this race together and so on. So, you know, I think we just finally made a decision that it was time to let it go and somebody else take over the race. Um, and it, now, you've, now you've been a college instructor for, for decades here in history primarily. Tell about, talk about your background there. Yeah, well, I started at Iowa State in 1963. And like a lot of freshmen, um, I was undecided about a major, and changed majors three or four times, a chemistry major, German major, but had a couple of terrific instructors my junior year in history and political science. And Greg Calvert was one of them, Don Rawson was one. And I basically had always loved history and read a lot and so on, and switched my major to history. And, you know, ended up getting an undergraduate degree in history and a, and a graduate degree in political science in 1968 was my undergraduate degree and 71 my master's degree. And, you know, I started basically um, towards a PhD when a friend of mine who was teaching at the Boone campus of DMACC was going to take a year sabbatical to go to Europe with her husband, who was a chemistry professor at Iowa State. Mm. And they took their kids with them and asked if I would teach for a year. <laughs> well, she came back and had young kids and had a change of heart about teaching, wanted to spend more time with the kids. So they opened up the position. I'd had a good year teaching. And what started out as I thought was a one-year appointment ended up being 38 years of teaching at Des Moines Area Community College wow. after, after two years at Iowa State as a TA. And mostly U.S. and Iowa history courses, but I taught a lot of political science courses. I taught U.S. government. I taught courses on state and local government. Um, you know, I taught courses on women's history, African-American history. And But anyway, then I just switched campuses to the Ankeny campus, which was my main office at DMAC, and I taught courses at the Urban campus as well. And did that up until the year 2010, when I retired full-time teaching and basically started teaching for fun at the Greater Des Moines Senior College. And I've been doing that ever since. So Continuing edu education classes, you said you got three coming up there, so, so you're still... Uh, keep, yeah, no, I was still I staying never, busy. I did never, you know, quit teaching because I lost my passion. Um, but I just found out I wanted to do other things. Uh, I do a lot of programs all over the state of Iowa on baseball history and Civil War history. And since I retired 11 years ago, I've done 168 programs all over the state of Iowa and all over the Midwest. And that's what, and I write a lot. I, I've written a number of articles for the Iowa History Journal. Um, I've written articles for eight years. I wrote articles for the Iowa Cubs yearbook on different facets of Iowa baseball history and so on. And, you know, baseball is another passion of mine in baseball history. And so it gave me a chance to, to do, you know, when people ask me, do I miss teaching? I said, well, I'm still teaching, but the only difference is I don't have to grade essay tests and the students all want to be there. <laughs> so so I, I still, I love it and I'll continue to do it as long as my health allows. So. And a lot of students who look like you, like you said, there's a lot of retirees in your classes. A lot of my students are older than I am, and they bring a lifetime of experience to class. So a lot of my classes are very interactive. And, you know, with COVID, obviously, I, I don't enjoy doing anything via, via Zoom. <laughs> so, so I'll get back in the classroom this spring again. So after a year and a half not being able to teach. You know, to, to a classroom full of students. Oh, so you have not been teaching then? Uh, no, no, they canceled the senior college. Okay. And so okay. I'll be teaching for continuing education at DMAC starting in the spring, a baseball course, uh, the last Tuesday of March and the first three Tuesdays of April when baseball season starts. It'll be a two hour course, four consecutive Tuesdays at the Southridge campus of DMAC. So, so yeah, teaching is still something I love to do and writing, researching. What do you love about baseball so much that, um, what is it, history, tradition? Well, it's a combination of things. A lot of people aren't aware of this, but I'm an immigrant and came to the United States when I was four and a half years old. Uh, I was a refugee in World War II, and my parents and my two older brothers 
uh, both fled Latvia. That's my ethnic background. Okay. And the, my younger brother and I were born in what they were called DP camps, displaced person camps, in northern Germany, uh, occupied by the Allies. The Germans had been taken, forced out of there. Hmm. And so when you come to America as a four-and-a-half-year-old kid in 1949, if you want to get thoroughly immersed in the culture of America, you learn about baseball. And we all had paper outs and we brought baseball cards in the 1950s. And, you know, a lot of people kind of wince when I say this, but I'm a lifelong Yankee fan <laughs> and in, in a sea of Cubs and Cardinals fans and Twins fans and everything else. So uh, baseball has been always something that, um, you know, I still collect baseball cards and I have, you know, since I was a kid. And, and I do programs on the history of how Iowa met baseball. And, you know, and, and I've been writing articles, like I said, uh, for the Iowa Cubs and for the Iowa History Journal and Iowa Heritage Illustrated. Um, were you in Iowa at the time uh, when you were four or, or did you eventually move to Iowa? Well, our, our family, when we were in the refugee camp, there were churches throughout the country that were sponsoring families and helping pay for them to get to the United States. And so there was a small church in Ringstead, Iowa, in northwest Iowa, St. John's Lutheran Church that sponsored our family coming to the United States in December of 1949. Okay. And my father, who could speak a number of languages, couldn't speak the one he needed, English. And so he basically was a laborer on a farm, a wonderful Danish couple. Uh, provided house for us with the church's help and so on and my dad worked you know for the farmer and then found out about a job working at the John Deere Works in Ankeny where again he could work with minimal language skills and we moved when I was pretty young to Des Moines in the early 1950s and grew up you know a good part of my my life in Des Moines graduated from Roosevelt High School in 1963 and then you know went to Ames as a student and stayed there for 18 years and then, like I said earlier eventually moved to Indianola for another 30 years and now back to West Des Moines. So I'm basically, what I tell people is I'm a Latvian by birthright. I was born in Germany. I've been thoroughly Americanized and Iowanized, if there is such a word. So so did your wife retire then when uh, when when Harkin retired then? Is that kind of the deal, package deal? She actually knew that, that Tom was not going to run for another Senate term. He'd served for 40 years in the House and the Senate. And so she retired just a little before he announced that he wasn't going to run again. And, you know, we have stayed active with the Harkin Institute at Drake, and it's a wonderful facility for Drake and what Tom is doing for the disability community. That's always been one of his passions because of his brother, Frank, who was deaf. And, you know, and, and Tom, with the recent death of Bob Dole, they were great friends, and they both worked together on sponsoring the Americans with Disabilities Act, which just celebrated its 30th anniversary. So, Did a lot of great th- uh, things, uh, certainly for, uh, yeah, for everybody, yeah, for, for sure. It just cuts across. It's yeah. not political at all, and it never should be. Yeah. It's just the right thing to do for a lot of people. So, yeah, we need we need more politicians like like him in office. <laughs> the word compromise is needed <laughs> for sure. Well, let's get off that t- uh, topic anyway. Let's get to more fun yeah. stuff. Uh, this forty-five year streak—it's coming up. What January first, right? Um, as I record this, this is December twentieth. Um, man, that's that's just a phenomenal streak. Um, I can't, I can't even imagine that because, you know, that means you're running when you've got the flu, when you're, when you got a cold, um, I assume you haven't had any serious broken bones, injuries. Um, there's a lot of luck and, and a lot of certainly perseverance that uh, goes into this. Well, you know, January 1st, uh, 99.999% of my running is done by myself. When I lived in Ames, I had a great support community, but when we moved to Indianola, it wasn't there. Yeah. And But you learn to discipline yourself. And, and the streak itself, when we lived in Ames and I got involved in long distance running, I and Cal Murdoch and a couple of other people organized the Iowa Prairie Track Club. And the Iowa Prairie Track Club, uh, we put together competitive teams to travel all over the Midwest to race in some of the major races. And one of those, I helped arrange some of the speakers that came in. And a native-born Iowan, Joe Henderson from Coin, Iowa, um, you know, he would always come back to the Drake Relays. His brother was one of the announcers for the Drake Relays. And Joe came to one of our meetings as a guest speaker. And I still remember Joe's words, and this is, you know, 46 or 7 years ago. Joe said that don't think about running 
if you're going to run that day, just think about how good it's going to be that day. And he said, habituate it. Make it part of your life. Think of it just like you do eating and sleeping. And and just go out and run every day. And he said, it's, it's not an obsession if it's healthy for you and you control it, it doesn't control you. And But you've got to be creative. You've got to deal with weather. You've got to deal with seasons and so on. And so what I did, because of that rugby injury, I started running. And I had actually run a year and a half without missing a day. And then the last day I missed was basically January 1st of 1977. And I missed it because my wife and I had hosted these wonderful New Year's Eve parties for a number of years. And I probably drank a little bit more than I should have, <laughs> stayed up a little bit later than I should have, and decided not to run that January 1st. And, you know, I just kind of the next day said, you know what, you know, I really missed not running yesterday. And uh, so it started on January 2nd. And when I go out, you know, this uh, January 1st, this coming January 1st, I'll have my wife take some pictures and I'll have to write an article for the National Registry um, and the website they have. And, you know, I've done this uh, when I hit my 40th year and I did it for my 45th and I wrote an article uh, about running through COVID. And, but anyway, the streak itself, when I set out, the, the rules are pretty, pretty simple. And the whole thing is based on the honor system. And, but, you know, I've had plenty of friends that are avid lifelong runners as well. I can vouch that, you know, I, I do this, take it seriously, and I do it. And, but the rules are simple. You have to run a minimum of one mile without any ambulatory support. And you have to document your mileage. And, you know, and when I was running competitively, uh, I built up to where I was running for probably 10 years between 70 and 100 miles a week. And I would, I would run, my short runs were 7 to 12 miles a day. And then I would run a lot of days. I would run 20 miles, at least a long run. And when I started running competitive marathons, just to get through the psychological barrier of 26.2 miles, I would go out and run an 18-miler in the morning and then go out and run a 7-miler easy in the evening. So I'd have more than 26 miles. And it, and it really did help. I learned that from some of my Kenyan friends up at Iowa State. Because they were running prodigious miles. They were running 120 a week, and they were running yeah. 25 a day and that kind of thing. And, and I couldn't keep up with them, but I learned from them. Yeah, right. And so the running streak, you know, it started out, I think, just as something that I incorporated into my life as normal. And the years passed by, and, of course, with the racing I did. And then, you know, it also became a family affair. Um, my wife, Diane, uh, she's run four marathons. And we uh, actually... We took a team up to the Manitoba Marathon in the 1980s of runners from Iowa. And it was a first-year marathon with about 8,000 runners. And Frank Richardson, who was one of the best runners ever produced in Iowa, Frank won the marathon. And my wife and I found out at the last minute that there was a husband-wife category. And we, we entered it. And my wife, was, my wife was running fairly well. And we won the, we won the race for husband-wife category. And I was running then sub three hour marathons consistently, and and it was a perfectly flat. Was course. she planning to run it, or, or yeah, or, she was. Or was just a spur of the moment. No, she was planning to run the marathon, but she didn't know like, and I didn't know that there was a husband wife category, and we got a real nice medal for it and everything else, and you know, and the Iowa runners had a great showing because you know we kind of dominated a lot of the categories, age group categories, but we took along some very good runners, and and we took runners. I ran Boston in 1978 and ran it in 79, and both times I ran it under two hours and 50 minutes. My personal uh, record for the Boston Marathon is 1979. I ran 241.17, and the way the Boston starts, it's a staggered start, and they remove ropes. You know, you have to be behind a rope depending on your qualifying time. Like this year's was, yeah. Yeah, well, and then what they did is you could make a, a adjustment depending on which area you were in at the beginning of the race. So with my qualifying time, I can make a 15-second adjustment. So my actual time was 2 hours, 41, and 32 seconds. Mm -hmm. But I could take 15 seconds off. Okay. And so, but that year, we took a team of Frank Richardson, Olympic qualifier, Bob Becker, Olympic qualifier, Pat McGuire, Olympic qualifier, Raul Duanda, Deanda, Olympic qualifier. And there were over 100 teams national and international teams entered in the team competition and little old Iowa came in fourth out of over a hundred teams and I remember the Greater Des Moines or Greater Boston Track Club with Bill Rogers winning the whole race they won the race 
And if I remember right, there was an international team that was second, and then it was the Atlanta Track Club that was third, and then Iowa. And you. And so, and I was really kind of the running manager. I mean, I'm way back there in 241, and these guys are all, you know, either under or in the 220s. Sure. Um, so that was that was a, one of the highlights, I think, of the Iowa Prairie Track Club, doing that well at Boston and put us on the map. Well, yeah, and it's kind of the and I, and I know Cal's gotten you know run a blaze going later on uh, and, and uh, toward his uh, uh, interest in running and that that had to be the uh, the you know certainly the precursor to it. Yeah, well, you know, the people like Cal and Mike Frank and Steve Bobbenhaus, I mean, they've been the pioneers. Of, of running here in Iowa on, on a major, you know, on a major scale, whether it's Living History Farms or Cal keeping, you know, both his his website going and, and keeping Cal is, is basically he's done the finish line for so many races you can't count him anymore, and and we worked the finish line at the Drake Road races for years. Uh, I was at the finish line for 10, 15 years. Um, as John Leonard and, and uh, Carl Boss were announcing the races and so on, they'd always look down at me and say, is the streak alive? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I know you, you had to have a few people that love running as much as I did yeah. uh, to keep races alive, keep them going. And it does take a commitment. It's not easy to organize a big race. And you need support. You need you know, financial support. Um, you know, an expo helps. Um, I ran in the first dam to dam. I ran Bix many times. Ed Froelich at Bix was a good friend. And, and then, of course, in addition to my wife being a runner, my daughter turned out to be a very good runner. And she was a walk-on at Iowa State. And she was academic All-American running cross-country for Iowa State. And she ran the Chicago Marathon. Uh, my son ended up running the Minneapolis Marathon. And so all of our family members have run at least one marathon. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of genetic a little bit. Um, but I think they just had to tag along with Dad, and so they, they became runners too. And they still do it for health mostly today. My wife walks and runs, you know, all the time. So, okay. And I think that's part of when you ask about the street. You mentioned earlier running through flu and running through sprains yeah. and strains, and it is a combination of luck. But partly the luck, in part, depends on how fit you are all the time, and how well you're acclimated to changes in weather how well you're acclimated to. And you, you learn a psychology of running too. And part of it is, I always tell people, run into the wind first. And that's kind of a metaphor. Mm-hmm. Or do the hard part first, and the rest comes a lot easier. And Or if you're running in the winter, uh, run in concentric circles, so you're never far from home. And you don't risk you know, getting frostbitten or something like that. Uh, when I lived in Indianola, I used to run behind some of the snow plows, and the drivers knew me. And you know, I'd go out at night late when there were no cars on the road, and I'd hear a snow plow go by, and I knew they'd be coming by. We lived on one of the main streets, and I'd run a couple miles behind the snow plows. <laughs> and so, what's, the, what's the closest that your streak has ever come to an end here? Uh, I know... I know I would have had some difficulty, like, the last couple of days. I've had family <laughs> Christmases. It's been tough. How close? I had to run last night. I had to run at 9 o'clock at night to get mine in. So how close have you come? I've run every hour of the day and night imaginable in, <laughs> in my travels. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Yeah. Uh, the closest, about 10 years ago, I don't know exactly how many years ago, is I had a bit of arrhythmia with my heart and I've never had you know any major heart issues but I actually had to check into a Mercy Hospital in West Des Moines and but I had my Nikes with me and I was on the top floor and they were going to give me some medication to help me sleep and, and control the arrhythmia and I just asked you know if there's no one up here could I run on the top floor and the nurses all looked at each other and well, I don't think we have any rules against it but my wife was with me and they said you know we prefer your wife not with you so she measured out how many loops it would take on the to top floor of the clinic to get a mile and that's the minimal standard and yeah. I think I did one extra loop to get over a mile and then they gave me whatever medication I needed and by the next day I went home yeah. and you know that's, I went home that's kind of close that's, yeah. that's putting it close yeah that's really uh... um, and I have had my my share of you know sniffles colds um, I had one recently. It wasn't bad. I didn't have a fever. I was able to run pretty easily. But I also was involved with Iowa Sister States for 25 years, traveling to Russia and Italy a number of times. And a lot of times when the people traveling, you've been on a plane for hours crossing the Atlantic, 
And all they want to do when they have a six-hour layover in the Netherlands is they want to sleep. Well, I found out from a friend of mine that the major airport in Amsterdam had massage, uh, you know, therapists downstairs and lockers and showers. So, and that was before 9-11. So I just said, is there any rule about me going out and running in the Dutch countryside? We've got a long layover here. And they said, just take your passport with you. You're free to go. And while they're feeling sorry for themselves, sleeping on their luggage and so on, I went on had a wonderful hour run through the tulips in spring in Holland and so on, came back, got a massage, took a shower, felt like a million bucks. Yeah. <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever had to run in an airport to get your run in? Many times. Many times. Before 9-11. Yeah. I, and a lot of times airports have areas that are under construction. And if you ask politely of the service people, if, if you can run and explain to them why you need your run, they're, they're really nice about it. Now, I, I've run at O'Hare, I've run at Atlanta, I've run a number of places in areas under construction. But you've got to be careful because security guards, they, they always think you're running from something. And, you know, but they usually communicate and let, there is a guy that wants to get a little exercise. He's got a two-hour layover. And uh, that's the guy out there running. So, uh, yeah, I, I've run at airports and, and so on. I think the other ones, I tell the story many times, and this was close to cutting off my, my running streak, is my wife and I, one of our favorite places to vacation uh, in the Midwest was Lake Itasca State Park up in Minnesota, the headwaters of the Mississippi. And we had gone up there, stayed for a number of days, and we had some friends that uh, were down by Leech Lake, which is about an hour's drive, maybe a little bit less. And so we went down to visit and stay overnight at Leech Lake. And I was going to go out for a mid-morning run. And the fog was just lifting over Leech Lake. It was a beautiful morning, sun kind of cutting through the fog. But it was, you know, early summer. And I, I wanted, you know, the option was to run on the paved roads where you'd have to deal with traffic. Uh, there wasn't much of a shoulder. Or run on the logging trails, which go right along the edge of the lake, but are a little hillier. And I love to run on trails. So, you know, I opted for the trails. And I hadn't left, you know, where we were staying more than about a half mile. And with my head down, I'm running up kind of a, not a very steep hill. And all of a sudden, I hear a roar. And there's a mother bear on her hind legs oh, with two cubs <laughs> and about 100 feet in front of me. And you're always told about, you know, a mother bear with cubs, don't get anywhere close to them. And she, I turned around, and no one timed me, but I probably ran the fastest mile I've ever run in my life. And I heard her footfalls for maybe 30 seconds. She was chasing me, but she also knew she had her cubs back there. And I realized after, you know, four or five minutes, she, she was chasing me. She just wanted me out of there, yeah. Yeah, she just wanted me away from there. And I was glad to oblige and mm -hmm. go the other direction. <laughs> and so I, I've had, you know, and I ran a lot when I lived in Indianola around Lake Aquabi. And it's 3.1 miles on the inner trail. And if you want to add some of the camping areas and so on, you can get four or five miles doing it. But there was a time in the fall... I knew the trails. I could literally run them blindfolded. But in the fall, when the leaves fall down, uh, there are a number of places where you had tree roots that stuck up. And I was running in the fall, and I was probably, you know, not paying attention closely to, to what I should have been paying attention to where a root was. And I did almost a complete flip, as it, you know, and kind of landed on my back. Nobody around me. And I just got up real slowly, painfully. And I said, well, it's not broken. That's a good start. And I took a few steps and said, oh, it's going to hurt. But, you know, I, I can do it. And and I was able to get my, my run in. And so, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of luck. Um, when we lived in Ames, I was running from Ames to Gilbert. It's a longer run. I think it was, I don't know, 10, 20 miles, that round trip, something like that. And there were warnings of tornadoes in the area. And... And I'm running on the county road that connects North Ames to Gilbert. I don't remember the number. And there was a small tornado forming ahead of me, maybe a half mile or a mile. And I literally had to jump in a ditch by a culvert and watch it come across the road. And it, I saw it pick up a motorcycle and put it through a barn. And, you know, and then it lifted. And it, didn't, it wasn't a major one. Minimal damage to anything except the motorcycle and the barn. And um, so, yeah, I've had my share of, of close calls and encounters, <laughs> but uh, been able to get around, you know, all of them. And, and again, 99% of the time, the runs are uneventful. And, uh, yeah. and you know, that's, that's the way it is. I say, I say you haven't lived until you've run into in a, in a complete thunderstorm. I mean, that's, uh, that's to get caught in one of those, that's, uh, that's pretty uh, special. Well, not just a thunderstorm. 
But I mentioned the tornado. But, but, but yeah, you got the tornado on But top of that. this I, another one, I, when my, my I, daughter I, was running for Iowa State, never had that. She, when my daughter was running for Iowa State, she needed to get some mileage in. It's winter. And the wind chill is minus 55 outside. And so we actually had my wife drive my daughter and I eight or 10 miles north of Indianola. So we would be running into the sun with the wind at our back. And I think the wind chill was minus 55. And I, I said earlier, you've, you've got to be creative, but you've also got to be a bulldog about this stuff. You've got to say, I can do this. And one thing you learn as a runner that that if you cover your hands and cover your head, that's where you lose most of your heat, even in the coldest of days. Now, with all the synthetic fibers and everything else, um, you can dress appropriately for almost any kind of weather. And when I did live in Ames, there were a couple of times, and I'm not sure Bill Bergen, the former track coach, could probably verify this, but there was one morning where the wind chill was, I think, minus 65 or something, and I had to get in at a 20-miler. So I talked to, I think, Dick Seagrave, George Strawn. I forget who the, the four were, or three, but the old state gym, I think it was 16 laps to the mile, and I needed to get a 20-miler. So I was going to go five miles one direction with one guy, five miles the other direction. It had to be on a Sunday morning because I couldn't have the track to myself, obviously. And so Bergen told me afterwards he had never heard of anyone running 20 miles on that track all the times he had lived in names. And I don't know, it might still be, you know. Uh, so, so I said earlier, you've got to be a little bit creative about this. So. Um, I know what you're talking about uh, with, with checking the, the weather before you go running, because I always do that. I always check and see where the wind is, you know, what direction it's in. And, and my route sometimes is, is a lot of times dictated. By, by, uh, by how the weather is. So uh, so I know what you're saying there. Yeah, well, I think that's part of it is, is yeah. that, you know, Iowans are sort of, whether you're a runner or not, we, we maybe are obsessed with checking the weather all the time, partly because, you know, the rural community and so on. But as a runner, you have to do that. And a story I like to share uh, with people is that um, my wife and I, in our retirement, in addition to running, we bike a lot. And, you know, we... Um, tram bike every day during derecho we i think we had three months where we didn't miss a day but august 10th of last year we checked the weather in the morning and it said a chance of thunder showers in the afternoon and so we go out to the clive running trail for a bike ride and we're about four miles into the ride and we hear the tornado sirens going off and we thought oh they're just testing them because the sky's blue and we turned around about four and a half miles out and started heading back and then we looked behind us and it was just pitch black coming towards us and we got caught into derecho on the clive running trail watching wow. trees crash all around us oh my and that so you know i learned a long time ago that as a runner that you have to adjust to what nature provides every day weather-wise you've flirted yeah. with death a couple times here we have, yeah yeah and you know and, and most of them you know whether it's running or biking i mean you just have to adjust and learn uh, what the day is going to be like and pick the time. You have to adjust for heat, you have to adjust for wind, you have to adjust for snow, and you do that. And that's, you know, it's going to make your run more enjoyable or at least more bearable. Um, well, in talking with you for this interview, I know you said you're going to run later this afternoon when it's the warmest, and you and I think a lot alike. I'm like, I'm not going to run at 7 o'clock or 6 o'clock in the morning because it's chillier, and I'm going to run at 11 o'clock. When the sun is out, like it is now, and, and it's, uh, you know, a lot warmer. So. Well, you know, now as a retiree for the last 11 years, it's pretty easy for me to pick the time when I want to run. But when I was working full-time and raising two kids and so on, and my wife had a full-time professional job, you were just uh, we, we had to really be creative about yeah. when we ran and kind of look out for each other. Yeah. I mean, you know, so um, it's, it's, but that's what any runner has to deal with, and, and especially if you're committed to trying to do it every day. And so you have to adjust to, you have to adjust to family events, you have to, you know, celebrations, holidays, things like that. And, you know, my family, I grew up with three brothers and a sister and so on. And they all knew that I was going to run sometime that day when we were together for family get togethers. And it was just kind of normal. John's out on a run. I mean, you know, and, and uh, get, get used to it. Yeah, right. <laughs> but sometimes maybe I adjusted the distance. I wouldn't be gone as long. Instead of running, you know, an hour or an hour and a half, I'd run, you know, a half hour and be back with the family. And well, so, well, I'm looking at your mileage totals, and last year you got in 1,376. So, and you said you get in between two and five. It's a run walk a lot of times. So you're, um, 
you know, you're, you're getting your streak in, but you're not uh, certainly overdoing it. How old are you, John, now? I'm 76. I'll be 77 so, in yeah. February. And, and you know, it's... It, um, when I was running competitively, I was running prodigious miles. And I said earlier, you know, yeah. 70 miles was common, yeah. even 100 miles a number of weeks running and so on. And now, you know, the last competitive race I ran was in 2001. And it was actually with my daughter. And what she was running for Iowa State. And she wanted uh, to run with a good friend of ours for the last 45 years, Jim Streeby from Atumwa. And he, he was a competitor of mine, too. He usually beat me. Uh, yeah. He was a terrific runner. Yeah. And But anyway, so my daughter and I drove down to Sigourney, Iowa for a 4th of July 5K. Yeah. We met Jim there. And Jim and I were going to pace her through the first two miles at a 6.05 pace. And, you know, so, you know, I'm in my 50s at the time. And it was a nice day for 4th of July. It could have been, you know, really hot, and it wasn't. And it was a morning race. So so we escorted her through the first two miles. And then we, my daughter's name is Hillary. We just said, Hillary, you go for it. And, of course, she was leading the women's race. And, and she would end up winning the race, winning's race. She ended up fifth in the race overall out of about 175. And she won her age group. Yeah. Well, Jim and I sort of jogged in the last mile. Jim won his age group. Uh, I finished second in my age group, and we had no plans to race. And so, so the running has changed after you know our, our racing careers came to an end. And now it's mostly for enjoyment, for health reasons, uh, to just you know it's a, a sense of freedom. You have the time to yourself every day. When I was teaching, a lot of my most creative ideas about what to do in class, you know, that particular day came at mile three of a five mile run. You know, I'd be thinking about what I'm going to talk about in the history class or yeah. political science class. And we're so bombarded today with electronic gadgets. You barely have any time to yourself, any time of the day. And, you know, even though I take my cell phone with me, when I run, I usually leave it in the pickup. I leave it, leave it, leave it in the pickup truck. And, and I don't want it to bother me. I don't want it to ring. Um, and I still kind of make jokes. I belong to an Anytime Fitness gym. And there was a great cartoon in the New Yorker recently. And it had two doors. And one was cell phone workout, serious workout was the other door. <laughs> okay. And it's still a kind of a pet peeve of mine. I see these people working on a treadmill and they're, you know, walking very slowly the whole time on their cell phone. And I'm furiously rowing next to them, <laughs> trying to get a real workout. <laughs> so, so, yeah, the reason I run now, you know, it's a slower pace. Uh, when I was running competitively, I weighed 155, 160. Now I'm weighing 180. Um, you know, the pace is 10, 12-minute miles. Um, but, you know, the objectives are totally different now. Yeah. It's basically to try and stay healthy. And, With and your health, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, to keep the streak going and so on. And at some point, the National Streak Registry, for a long time, um, the number one runner in the country, he was a mail carrier from Baltimore. His name was Bob Ray. And um, I don't think he's related to the former governor of Iowa. But Bob, I think he had hit 45 miles. And one morning he told his wife, it's a beautiful day. You know, just great watching the birds out of the bird feeder. He said, it's time to stop on my terms. Mm. And he said, I'm not going to run today. And he gracefully dropped his ended his streak. And it is sort of unfortunate that a lot of these runners, their streak ends when they're hit by a car or they have a heart attack, um, and it's not the, not the way they want it to, to end. And so I don't have any, you know, 50-mile streak in mind necessarily. Um, it could end soon. I hope not. I still enjoy doing it. But at some point, I hope I can do what Bob Ray did and just say, you know, and, I've had a wonderful streak. Do it on your own. Do it on my Stop own terms. Stop it on your own, yeah. And so, but right who, has, who, has, who has the national record Right, right now, the, the leader is John Sutherland from Utah. And John is a writer. I don't know him personally, but obviously we all know of each other. Uh, the second longest streak is Jim Pearson from Washington, who's a, a coach, a running coach. Um, I do know the third longest streak, who just surpassed 50 years. His name is Steve DeBoer. He's a dietitian at the Mayo Clinic. And 15 years ago, Steve came down to Hella doing research on um, family members. He was doing genealogical research. And he gave me a call and he said, John, you want to run together? I think I was in the top 20 then, and Steve was in the top 10. I said, I'd be honored, you know. And so we met at Central College, and I think we ran five or seven miles and then had a big breakfast afterwards. 
And Steve did invite me recently to go up and run with him for his 50th. Um, but, you know, my wife had had a health issue and, and I didn't want to travel with COVID. So I, I passed. Um, but, you know, the um, right now I'm currently ninth in the nation. And, um, and there is a fellow from Canada. I don't know him. Um, he's in the top 10. So I'm 10th in the world. For a long time, Ron Hill, former Olympian in the 1950s from England, was the number one, number one streak in the world. And I think Ron had some health issues, if I remember, a few years ago, and his streak ended. And so number six is, uh, I think it's, it's Bob Kraft from Miami. And, and everyone knows about him because his nickname, nickname is The Raven. And he lives in Miami and he runs on the beaches barefooted. And I think he's number six right now. And so I, we know of each other, and, and most are accomplished runners. They're good marathoners. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of them are sub-240 marathoners. Um, they're sub-35, oh, 10K runners. They're sub-16, 5K runners. Because um, we periodically they ask us for our personal best times at the various distances. So they're serious runners. Yeah. Uh, these, are, these aren't fun runners or joggers. No, no. <laughs> So you'd have to run well into your 80s to even have a chance to be number one or even top three, probably, you know, and that's assuming that... When, when I became, you know, when I reached the top 10, I was elated. Yeah. And, that's, that's you know, phenomenal. if I finished eighth, that's fine. Yeah. Seventh, fine. Yeah. What I will do, though, when I retire, I'll have one of the longest retired streaks. Yes. And they, they keep track yeah, of those as well. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I hope I can keep going a few more years. And um, But like I said, if it, if it ends next year, so be it. So you, know. you so you belong to Anytime Fitness Gym, so I assume you don't have your own treadmill. I was going to ask you about that, whether you had your own, but you must go to the gym and like, like me whenever I need to. To be blunt... I hate treadmills. <laughs> well, that was another question I was going to get to. I said earlier, I love running out where I see deer and wild turkeys and owls and everything else, and I'm the only one out there. And, you know, that's part of the enjoyment of, of you know, running. And, you know, I don't want to be bothered, you know. So I, I've only run on treadmills a couple times, and I don't like it. I don't like running on an indoor track. You know, that's not quite as bad because some of the indoor tracks now are quarter-mile tracks or fairly long distance. But... When I was younger, running that streak, you know, 13 loops to the mile or 15 loops to the mile, no thank you. You know, it's hard to keep track of, you know, how many miles you've run. And so, but I do, I've belonged to gyms for a long time because I do believe in, in you know, full body workout. And I bike, like I said earlier, a lot. And I have now for 15 years or so. Uh, my daughter got into doing, you know, basically, uh, she worked out in, in a pool. She did biking. She had a couple of issues with stress fractures when she ran for Iowa State. So I got into, you know, doing workouts with her. And um, But at the gym, one of the things I've discovered the last 10 or so years is rowing machines are fabulous. They're great for your knees. You get a full body workout. Uh, you get a, you know, upper back workout, abs uh, workout, biceps, triceps. You can vary the pace and so on. So I usually, when the weather's horrible, I do some indoor biking and rowing in addition to my minimal, you know, qualifications for the streak. So a good heart 10 minutes is, uh, yeah, it's a really good workout. Yeah. Well, it's not usually when I row, it's a 5,000 meter, you know, a half hour, 40 minute oh, workout even longer, on the rowing yeah. machine. Yeah. Okay. And, wow. and I, and I pay, do it, pace it. I do it sort of like intervals. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll start to warm up, you know, the first thousand meters and then go like crazy for the sure. next thousand meters or something. Um, so it's a lot like running when you're training for competitive racing. You can vary it just to, you know, build up your VO2 capacity a little bit. So, but I, you know, it's, it's mostly to get the full body workout because the quality isn't there anymore with my running. Um, so where's your, where's your go-to place to run? Where is your... For your final run ever in in this streak, where are you going to, to find the best scenery, the best wildlife, everything? Where is it going to be? Where Where's your go-to spot? Well, in the last, you know, almost 45 years, I've had a number of favorite places to run yeah. uh, here in Iowa. And I'll just mention a couple of them. I, sure. um, my wife and I purchased a country schoolhouse up in Alamakee County about 40 years ago. It's Hanover Township Schoolhouse Number 2, built in 1871. Sure. And we basically converted it into a wonderful weekend retreat. Sure. It's on a trout stream valley, 
and um, it's north of Wakun, Iowa, about seven miles. And it is a glorious valley, and with all kinds of wildlife and eagles and birds nesting there. And, you know, for all the years that we owned the schoolhouse, we sold it a few years ago as part of downsizing. But I loved running up in northeast Iowa, and, those, and I did a lot of hill workouts. There are hills there that are two miles long. And my wife, or my, when my daughter was running competitively, we would do workouts on those hills. Um, when we lived in Indianola, Lake Aquabi State Park, the word Aquabi is Sauk Indian for peaceful or restful place. And, I mean, it was kind of a perfect place for me to do my runs. And I did most of my running uh, at Lake Aquabi. If I had to run in town because of snow was too deep or something, then I ran in town. But if I could go to Lake Aquabi, and, and the park is busy about five months of the year. About seven months of the year, I felt like I owned the park. And so, you know, and, and that's a place I thought about doing my final run. And recently, since we've lived in Des Moines now for the last five, four or five years, the, the Raccoon River Valley Park. And, you know, the major trail around the lake is three, a little over three miles. But then you can do a lot of smaller uh, additional trails, which aren't used very much at all. And, and you can easily get a five-mile run on those other trails. And you, were, and you were telling me about uh, there, there's a spot that nobody really runs on that's, that's east of there, east of that trail, actually. Yeah, at the, at the very east end of the park, uh, beyond the dog park and beyond the archery range, there's private land owned by Martin Marietta. And you have to park the car right by the creek there and crawl under the gate. <laughs> and no one's ever bothered me. And you can do a, a loop, um, you know, kind of about, it's about a three-quarter mile loop um, down there. And, you know, I when I ran yesterday, there were 14 deer down there, one buck, and, and the rest were, were does. Last winter, with COVID, almost every time I ran down there, there was a pair of barred owls. And, you know, a lot of people, they don't even know what barred owls are, but they got used to me. And and I see turkeys down there all the time, wild turkeys. And I usually stop and, and listen, you know, and, and walk by the, the deer and then continue my running. Um, but with COVID, I just tried to avoid where people were. And But the rest of the time running around the park, when I completed 40 years, a reporter from the Des Moines Register uh, came out. And as I was finishing my, my run by Raccoon River Valley Park, by the dog park, he had brought along a photographer. And they saw me coming the last couple hundred yards and took a bunch of pictures of me finishing the run and then drove over to my house and did an interview and so on. And on the following St. Patrick's Day, um, on March 17th, the front page article in the register was about my running streak. And so, you know, it's, it's, I, like to run, um, I like to run with nature. And it's my time. It's a sense of freedom. Uh, and that's where my last run is going to be. And, um, you know, a lot of people want to run with me. And I have nothing against that. But with COVID, obviously, I've been super careful. And I'm in the age group where I don't have, you know, serious issues, health issues. But I still don't want that to interrupt my, my street. No. And so I politely said to some of the Des Moines area runners, uh, when it's safe to run, I'll run with you. I'll be honored to run with you. And a couple of asked, you know, to run with me. And I know there are about 30 now Iowa runners on the running streak. I've got a list of all of them. <laughs> and I know where they're at and how many years their streaks are. And someday, hopefully, I can run with a bunch of them. But, you know, right now the preference is, is that I run alone. Who's got a streak that people would know about from, from islands? Who's somebody that is on that list that people would go, oh, yeah, I know that person? Well, you don't. I, I know. Don't know a lot of them personally. The, the long, second longest streak was someone that popped up relatively recently on the streak registry. He's a minister from up in Northwest Iowa, and I think he's got like a 15-year streak or something like that. I, I don't have my list with me, but I did actually document the top 20 or so streaks in Iowa, and most of them are you know relatively recent. They're less than 10 years. A number of them are less than five years and so on. But I applaud every one of them because I know what it takes to even run a year without, you know. Uh, I hope they can keep it going and I hope they can make it part of their lives. And, and I hope their families understand why it's important to them. <laughs> why did you, uh, when you were competitively running, when you were running those, you know, 241 marathons, did you ever think, God, I could just take a day off, you know, before? Would you take a day off before a marathon back then? Um, the day before the marathon, or would you still run that day? Well, you know, I've mentioned a couple times my friend Jim Streeby, who I always thought was one of the best personal coaches in the state of Iowa for long-distance running. And Jim actually 
convinced me you don't take a day off. What you do is you run two miles to warm up before a marathon, and then you run two miles after a marathon. So, you know, your body can sort of adapt, and you don't tighten up. And a story I like to tell is after I ran my fastest marathon in Boston in 1979, I had stayed with a friend at Harvard, and I'd heard about this um, new track, indoor track, that Harvard had built, state-of-the-art, the best science involved in the sloping of the track, the materials it was built with. And so it was close to where I was staying in one of the dormitories at Harvard. And I went over there, and there was this elderly Irishman, and he was the he was the caretaker. He he watched over the track. And I just said, you know, I've heard about the track, and I was just interested if I could run a little bit on it to cool down from the marathon. And he looked at me and he said, "How'd you do?" And I said, "Well, I I had a, a good marathon." And he said. How'd you do? And I understood what he meant. He knew the marathon and he knew what times were. And I said, well, I did fairly well in my age group. I ran 241.17. And then he said, what's your name? And I said, John. He said, John, you're, you're welcome to run on this track as long as you like. And if anybody bothers you, I'll come and, and take care of that. <laughs> and so I felt really honored. you know. But what I learned in there is that sometimes, instead of taking a day off or even an hour or two off, stretch, do a short, easy run, cool down, whether it's a 5K, 10K, or a marathon, I think that's just part of it. But it's also the psychology. You think, wow, I've trained six months for this marathon. I just ran a personal best. I need to take a day off. Ask the Kenyans if they take a day off. And, yeah. and yeah. I, I have friends that... Different mentality there. It's, with a, it's a mindset. A lot of it is. Yeah. And the body, you know, it can adapt, I think, as part of it. And, you know, I... I um, when my daughter was running competitively, I went down with her to the Vicks race in Davenport one time, and she had a, a very low seated number, and you know it was I think twelve or something for the race, mm, yeah. and so we were going to get in with the masses, you know, all twenty thousand or whatever there that year, and somebody said to her, "No, no, you go to the front," and they had a roped off area just for the elite male and female runners, and I walked up to you know where that was. And lo and behold, who did we see had gotten a seated number? Governor Vilsack. <laughs> Governor Vilsack, he's a friend, but he's also kind of a plotter, and he'll admit oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, but he, he, for a while, was a dedicated runner. Yeah. And he would run from Terrace Hill to the Capitol listening to the Eagles yeah. <laughs> on his headphones. And But anyway, so I took a picture of my daughter with Governor Vilsack, and then Vilsack headed to the back of the pack. My daughter went up there, and it was mostly Kenyans, male and female. And they immediately just really quite said, join us for stretching. And so she felt really honored and privileged to be up there with some of the best runners in the world stretching before the VIX race. And she ended up, I think, seventh out of 6,000 women or whatever it was in the race and had a great race. And so, but, you know, I've learned, too, that that's that's part of this whole thing is that uh, there's a lot more to just running than the race itself. That it's a community. Yeah. It's it's the stretching. It's the exercise. If I have a bad day, I just say I had a bad day. You know, blow it off. Yeah. Go around the next day. And you know, so and and a lot of people have said sometimes you have to. What was the expression by Abraham Lincoln? Or a journey of a thousand miles begins with the first hundred steps, or something like sure. that. And sure. I think about something like that when I'm thinking about running. That maybe you know you feel lousy when you start out, and lo and behold, a mile later, all of a sudden. You're feeling great. You know, a, you don't know that, so. a good stretching program really, really helps a lot. I'm sure. I'm sure you do at least half an hour, probably an hour a day. Um, well, it depends partly if I've done other workouts in the gym, because if, you know if I've been on a rowing machine before I run, I don't need to stretch very much, and or if I know I'm going to the rowing machine afterwards, I usually work out two hours a day, and you know with, with the running, the biking. And, you know, in the summer more, two and a half to three hours a day, now that I can. Yeah. You know, so, but it's all part of total fitness, kind of. Um, well, I've got a good suggestion for you for uh, New Year's Day. You can go to the, uh, the the Mitten Run at the Lions Shelter. Um, maybe that's too much of a crowd for you, but uh, <laughs> but that's always a go-to place for me. Uh, where, where are you going to go on January 1st? Probably to visit my dear friends at Raccoon River Valley Park okay. and have my wife meet me as I finish my run okay. and take a picture. Okay. And I might have two big numbers in front of me, 45. Yeah. And, um, 
you know, have her take the picture and then sit down and write my article about completing my street. Well, because what they do have is they have five year brackets. And when you join a new bracket, you join a new category of street runners. So I'll be moving into the second highest category possible. And so, you know, it'll it'll be an honor. The next one is 50 and and up. Yeah. And you've got uh, some diaries here that you brought along. Let's take a look at these. This is from 1982. This, is, this looks, okay, 82. Um, it's a Monday, August 9th, and I would run nine miles from 125 to about 225. It was cool, 60 degrees, cloudy. Yep. Uh, <laughs> And I might have to edit a little bit the comments, but sometimes. But it says nicest, nicest sleeping night in weeks. Cool, low humidity. Uh, finished up on Byzantine civilization and discussed Islam and world civilization, <laughs> Western civilization. Talked about Eleanor Roosevelt, first ladies, the depression of World War II, in women's history class. Ran a lovely nine-mile run on a bike path that looked around Linfurrier Lodge, the gym, and home. Um, Bushes. This is a, a lot of very right. personal diary, not just running. Well, yeah, but what I did is I inserted yeah. a lot of times when I would run races. Okay, this was that's me in a race. Some pictures here. That's the Urbandale Fourth of July five mile road race, and that's Back probably the results. Four miles. Uh, oh, this was a Peggy Nepple Memorial Darryl. Race. Peggy yeah. was a world record holder. Yeah. Died of cancer way too young. Right, yeah. And I wrote an editorial for the Indianola paper as a tribute to, to Peggy. Um, and I know I've got in here. But I kept diaries like this for about 10 years. Yeah, oh, here's, and you kept some okay, of your results was, in there too. Yeah. Well, this is 79 wow. when I ran Boston. Kept track of the models. Oh, you did it on a calendar. Other yeah. stuff that I did. And a lot of times, it, it, obviously, I didn't write down the weather conditions or anything. Yeah. But you can see 100 miles, 94 miles, 94 miles, 101 miles. Yeah. Um, and I've got a whole plastic tub full of these. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want to ask that's me in the last you... 45 years what happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it happened. So. Well, I hope we'll be back here in five more years to talk about the street going on. And, and what is it? Uh, what's the name of the... Now, the 45 that you're going to be going into? The Coverts. The Coverts is Named what you're going to Mark Covert, That's who the for move. a long time had the longest running streak in the United States okay. and has since retired his streak. And uh, there are just a handful of people in that category. Um, I'll be you know, still number nine unless something happens to the others above me. And yeah. we never wish ill will on anybody <laughs> above us because we know what everybody's put up with and gone through. All these years, and uh, and right now I'm not even thinking about moving up to the hills, around joining Ron Hill and the three guys in the 50. The hills is the, is the 50. If it happens, 50 it'll happen. Street, yeah, so. yeah. If it happens, it happens. If not, so be it. You know, I hope I have a nice day when I stop. <laughs> well, this has been an enjoy- enjoyable chat. Uh, thanks for the time, John, and um, have uh, have an enjoyable run uh, later today. It was beautiful <laughs> outside. It's going to be a great day for a run. Thanks, Lance. Thank you.